0: Amen. Thank you, Victoria. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love the time of the year that we are just now entering into. Uh, especially with last week having um, daylight savings, where all of a sudden the sun actually pops out from the dead, and we actually get to see glimpses of it. I mean, it is crazy to actually have it sunny out while we go to church in the evening. Um, It's also the time where things are actually starting to come back to life, um, with flowers blooming and the grass being really green and getting long, so for the first time in months, you're actually having to cut your lawn. But I think the best best part of this year, or best part of the year right now for me, uh, is something called March Madness. (laughs) Which, if you're anything like me, it's been a struggle to work Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and today, because you've got pretty much as much college basketball as you would like. Um, and what, what I love about March Madness is, again, it's 64 teams playing to be the best team in the nation. Um, and you have ranks one through 16 within these different brackets. And each year, we all know there's gonna be that Cinderella team that kind of pops out of nowhere, beats a higher seed, and just continues this role. I think of last year with the number 10 seed, Syracuse, who a lot of people don't even think should be in the tournament, let alone they make it into the tournament, and they start by defeating Bay- uh, Dayton, the middle Tennessee, then Gonzaga, and then Virginia. And they end up making it to the final four. And it, it almost seems, it seems too good to be true, this Cinderella story. Or in 2008, we see Davison. Okay, and all, everybody knows Davison because of Steph Curry, and now we see him in the NBA just tearing it up. And we see them on their road to the Elite Eight, where Steph Curry is unguardable and hits shot after shot after shot. And I believe in that, in that, uh, that run they also beat uh, Gonzaga, so I apologize, Stephen, for that. Um, it, you see, it, it, seems, it seems too good to be true to be on this run. Or we go all the way back to 1985, where the number eight seed, Villanova, upsets Patrick Ewing and the Georgetown Hoyas in an epic game where they literally shot 78% from the field to win that game. It seems too good to be true. Or maybe you're not a sports fan. Then we'll use a personal example in my life, is you can look at me, and then you can look at my lovely wife, Anna, and you probably think, why the heck would Anna ever pick this guy? You see, it seems, seems too good to be true. You see, there's so many stories in our culture and in our own lives where we can't help but just say, it just seems too good to be true. And tonight, I believe that we get a look at a story in the Bible that honestly, upon the first reading of it, really seems too good to be true. It's the story of Paul's, I mean, of Saul's conversion. And we know this is not the first time that Saul has been introduced in this story. A few weeks ago, uh, Saul was introduced for the first time, and it definitely wasn't the highlight of his life, because he was present at the stoning of Stephen. At the end of Acts 7, it says, when they cast him, which is Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then a few verses later, it says, and Saul approved of this execution. See, that's the first glimpse we get of this character Saul. Allowing a Christian to be killed, allowing a follower of Jesus to be killed, saying, yeah, come lay your coats at my feet so they don't get dirty while we pick up large stones and throw them at this man. He approves of that. And then we enter into today's text, where we see him actually getting an extradition order to go 150 miles away. This is how serious he is about getting rid of the followers of Jesus, what they called at that point, the way. That he's like, I'm gonna go 150 miles away so that we can send them back to Jerusalem so that we can punish them. Yet somehow in this adventure, in this road to Damascus, his life is completely changed. And he goes from Saul, the one that's trying to kill Christians, to then Saul, the one that's proclaiming Christ. You see, it almost seems too good to be true. But the beautiful thing is it's not. This is scripture, this is God breathed, and this story is reality. To think of it in today's context, a story like this would be as if Saddam Hussein Came to know Jesus, was converted, and then actually went and shared the gospel with the Arabs. Like, that just doesn't happen. This is a crazy story that is absolutely amazing because at the heart of it, we see that God can save anyone and use them for his kingdom. You see, no one is too far gone when it comes to God, no one is too far gone for God to save. And this story really focuses on the conversion of Saul and then kind of what projects out of that. And so today we're gonna look at three different elements um, that are present in this conversion story. So if you're taking notes, this will be super simple for you. Uh, First, we're gonna look at the characteristics of conversion. Second, we'll look at the cost of conversion. And lastly, we're gonna look at the community of conversion. But I think it's prior to looking at the characteristics of conversion, It's important to note that not all of Saul's story is going to be this super common reality. And so I think it's important to address some of the unique elements of Saul's story before we get into what are more of the common elements and I think kind of crucial elements that should be present in our story. And the first is not everyone is going to have this sudden, unexpected encounter with Jesus You see, Saul has a rare case where he wants nothing to do with Jesus. He actually is trying to do the opposite. He's trying to destroy people that want something to do with Jesus. And Gene just just kind of smacks him and stops him in his tracks and wakes him up. Not everybody's going to have this just aha, shock and awe moment. And another thing is very, very, very few people are going to have this blinding light experience, this literal change where he goes from seeing to blind, What I love is that these elements show that nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing is outside of God's power. You see, with with Christ, no one is too far gone. God can truly save anyone. And as we're going to see through the story, he can truly save anyone and use them for his kingdom. So we're going to begin by looking at characteristics of conversion. Conversion. And I think it's important as we start to process through even all three of these categories, the desire for me is really to bring in a sense of praise and praising God for what he's done in our lives and the lives of those around us, in Saul's life, but also a sense of introspection or even conviction as we look at what's laid out for us and say, is that that true of me? The desire is praise and introspection. And so we're going to look at six different elements that are present in his conversion story that I think are typical biblical elements of conversion. It's not that this is an exhaustive list, but I do believe that these elements should be present in a story of somebody coming to know Jesus. So if you join me, we're going to read Acts 9, 1 through 5 to start out with. And if you're going to be using one of the church Bibles under your chairs, you can see that on page 596. So page 596, and we're going to be looking at Acts verses 1, chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Again, so that's that point that he actually has this order that he can go out, pull Christians, and bring them back to Jerusalem. And he's breathing out threats. Literally, his breath, his life itself, is threats and murder towards those that belong to the way. And in verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think one of the first elements of conversion is you have a personal encounter with Christ. And we see that here where Paul's, Saul's story might be unique in the sense that he actually gets an audible voice from God. But he has a personal personal encounter with Jesus Christ. We're all going to meet Jesus in different ways. But the key is that we've all met him. That we all have some kind of story that's saying, I did not know him, and now I know him. I've come to actually meet Jesus Christ. For some of you, it could be through sitting through church sermons and getting to hear Jesus proclaimed, and it's this moment of coming to be like, that's who he is. He's here. I see him. For some of you, it could actually be just walking in nature and getting to see the beauty that God has created, and seeing there's something bigger. There's somebody that actually created this, through this, and through other means coming to find Jesus. For others, you can see him through dreams or revelation. I think this is really common as I hear story after story of people in the Middle East that actually have no access to the Bible where in a dream they, they actually see Jesus and he tells them to go to this man at this house and the gospel is shared through that experience. Or for a lot of people, I think it's through friends. God uses people to proclaim his truth. See, we all meet Jesus in different ways but we all end up meeting him. I think it's important to realize it's not, it's more than just knowing about Jesus, but it's actually having this encounter, because as we know, Saul is on this hunt for followers of the way, and Saul would know a lot about Jesus and who he is. Though he might disagree on who the followers of the way say that he is, he would know who Jesus is, but it wasn't until he actually encountered Jesus that his life was changed, Conversion is to actually know Jesus, not just know about him. Number two, the second thing we see that is a typical element of conversion is the surrender to the lordship of Christ. And we see that in verses six through eight, where again, Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? Which, Lord is really just another word for sir. It's not actually this God-fearing awe, Lord, but just, who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, who are you who you are persecuting? And Jesus says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul so rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. You see, when you come and encounter Jesus Christ, when it's this personal encounter there's going to be a surrender element. Just as, just as Saul hears, this is what Jesus has told me to do. And so the immediate thing is to get up, respond in obedience, and surrender his life to what God has called him. One commentator put it this way he said, Though decision and commitment are certainly involved, conversion is at root not a decision nor a commitment, but a surrender to the supreme authority of Jesus. And we'll even see later that Jesus. I mean, Saul's first response after having sight is to actually be baptized. That's prior to even having food in his body that we'll see he fasts. And he goes and gets baptized. And even that, that's a surrender saying, God, I'm going to make a public claim before all these people that I am yours and you are mine. There's a surrender element to the lordship of Jesus. Number three, when you encounter Jesus, you're gonna have conviction of sin. And we see that in this story in verse nine where Saul gets to the city and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So his response to God saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Again, God is all-knowing, so he, he knows why Saul is persecuting him. But it's this question for Saul to really be thinking through, like, what am I doing? And as he processes through that, his response is to pray and fast for three days. Which again, him being Jewish, it was very common. He would have multiple fasts throughout the week. But this type of fast, a three-day fast of no food or water, was really just typical of somebody that was repenting and seeking the face of God. You see, when we come to Jesus, there's going to be conviction. Because if we're not convicted, we're still not going to say we need him. Be like, oh great, nice to see you, but I'm good, I'm on my own way. That's not actually encountering Jesus. That's just knowing stuff about him. When you see the supremacy of him, and then you see where you're at, conviction comes. And for some of us, we might be deeply convicted of our sin prior to coming into relationship with Jesus. Where it's kind of like a switch is turned and you're just brought to tears, brought to your knees of seeing this is how low and how wicked I am and how good God is. But some of you, and I'm sure a lot of you have grown up in the church, it's more of a progression over time. Uh, When I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I was four years old. And like you can only imagine what the conviction of sin of a four-year-old is like. I, what, I hit my brother on the head with a tool, or I hit my brother through blocks at him. I wrote poop on my van. You know, like these kind of things. True story. <laughs> and so you go through these kind of things, but there's not actually really a conviction of sin in that moment. For me, it was like, oh, I was told at Sunday school, like, Jesus loves me. That's great. I can ask him in my heart. Boom. Sweet. But as time has gone on, there's been that progression of really not until my high school and college years that I'm really brought face to face with with the evil in my life, with the wickedness in my life, with the ways that I'm running from God. And it's in those moments that my conviction grows to realize that like, I am nothing apart from Christ. And the goodness of my life is from Christ. You see, for some of us, it's gonna be a radical change. For some of us, it's gonna be progression. But regardless of that story, conviction of sin is very present. And I think as followers of Christ, it's not like you reach a conviction of sin at one moment you're like, okay, I'm bad, sweet, Jesus is here, I'm good. And you never go back to it. But I think as a follower of Christ, we're always having to think through where where are the elements of our life that we are avoiding Jesus or pushing away. Conviction of sin is present now, but present in the future and the days to come. And number four, we see we go from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. And I love this element, because we have, we have Saul first saying, who are you, Lord, in verse 5. And he's spiritually blind at that moment, and then actually become as physically blind as we see the light coming. And then we see in verse 18, as he progresses through finally to coming to know Jesus This is what verse 18 says. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then in verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Isn't this an amazing story that prior to, the last thing he says prior to really encountering Jesus and having this conversion experience is who are you, Lord? Who are you, sir? And then we jump ahead 15 or so verses later and the first thing coming out of his mouth that we hear is Jesus is the Son of God. Spiritual blindness, even physical blindness, to then spiritual sight. Again, Saul was somebody that was going to kill Christians, spiritually blind, and turns to somebody that's actually proclaiming Christ, spiritual sight. And I think in our lives, that's present as well as I think a lot of people I've talked to where it's, they come to know Jesus and their sense of morality potentially changes. What they once thought was totally okay to do, now they're kind of struck with, oh, is that actually what God desires for my life? Is it actually super cool to sleep with my girlfriend now? Oh, maybe not. As God's called, the sanctity and holiness of marriage. Or I've, they've come face to face with, what is the purpose of my life? And I know a lot of you guys are in the college college uh, era, and it's trying to think through, what is the next steps for me? And so often, I feel like it's in moment that God grabs you and he's saying, hey, you're all about money right now, but I'm gonna completely change your course. I mean, when I was a student, I started out in construction engineering management at Oregon State, and I lasted for like a term and a half. And really, the only purpose of me doing that was I thought it'd be cool to own my own construction company and have a truck that said, like, Walker Construction on the side. Like, I don't even like construction, so I don't know why I wanted to do that. But it was, again, I had this desire, like I want money, I want notoriety. And I was even following Jesus at that time, but still, through the conviction of the sin, through the God changing your life from opening areas of your life that are blind. I mean, now I'm here today, I transferred to schools, I spent a whole different experience so that I can actually proclaim Jesus. And not everybody's story is going to look like mine, but all of our stories are going to have elements of areas of blindness and then actually being able to see And that sight is refreshing. We finally have 2020 for the first time. And number five, we get to have communion with the body of Christ, with the church. And I think this is a sweet, sweet element. I mean, we see right away that Ananias, Ananias, when he first talks to Saul, he says, Brother Saul, which is so rare that this is the first time he's ever met him, but it's inviting him into the fold, saying, you are part of our family You see, when we come to know Jesus, when we are converted, we're not just converted to him, we're converted to his people. And with that, we get brothers and sisters galore. There's no single child in the family of God. And later on, we see that as soon as he regains his sight, he actually joins the disciples in Damascus. That's the first thing he does after he he regains his sight, he gets baptized, he eats, and then he goes to join the disciples in Damascus. Damascus. And then later when he enters Jerusalem, his first objective is to, again, join the disciples. There's this idea that when you join the family of God, you're actually joining the family of God and being part of what God is doing in the world with his people, for his people. But we're going to unpack this a little bit more in the third section as we look at what the community of conversion actually looks like. And then lastly, the sixth is when you're converted, there's going to be conversion to commission. There's going to be conversion to commission. And as we see in verse 19, he says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, um, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And so he has authority from the chief priests to bind who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, and kings, and the children of Israel. See, Ananias is not just, hey, you prayed this prayer, now you got to get this card that's just to get out of hell free card, and you just kind of put in your back pocket, and you do your own thing, and you kind of go to church for a little bit when you can, and you read your Bible when you can, and then when you get up those pearly gates, you like pull out the card, and you're like, oh, remember this one? Here's my ticket in. So often I think that's the approach is, oh, I prayed the prayer when I was five years old. I prayed the prayer at camp. Like, whatever that looks like. Nowhere in here, nowhere in my tenets of conversion of what the Bible says is there this pray this prayer element. But rather, he's saying that when you come to know Jesus, you can't help but give your life away for Jesus. You see, we are saved so that we might actually give our life away. And what is the first thing that Saul does? He actually preaches the gospel boldly. Like that's the amazing thing. Is he's he's saved into Jesus' family and the next thing you know he's trying to produce more in the family of God. And Saul's not unique in that. We all know that Jesus gave the great commission and that's not just for the disciples, but that's for all of us. Because though the disciples lived 2000 years ago, we today as followers of Jesus are disciples of Jesus. He's given us the great commission. You see, to be a disciple means we're actually making disciples. You can't be a disciple that's not making disciples. We are commissioned by God when we come into a relationship with God to proclaim his truth. And I really think if we actually have been brought into the fold of God, if we've experienced God, if we've been convicted of sin, if we've surrendered to him, if we've gone from spiritually blind to spiritually seeing, if we're part of this family, then why would we not tell people about it? You see, we move from conversion to commission. But I think we can all say that sometimes within that commissioning, sometimes within that going and proclaiming Jesus, there's some fear in that. It's kind of hard and it's kind of scary at moments. And that's because there's a cost. There's a cost of conversion. And that's going to be the second thing we look at tonight. The cost of conversion. What is that cost. And we're going to look at the two different people, really, that I think project that well, and that's Saul and Ananias. And so as we read, Ananias comes to Saul after kind of arguing with God, like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I know who this man is. He might actually kill me. But yet, in obedience, he goes to Saul And he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then in verse 16, God says, which is a profound, scary yet beautiful verse, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, in our in our commissioning, in our conversion, we also have to realize that there's a cost. By hope that we were used united that that cost is so worth it, that we could do it time and time and time again for what is our reward, for what is the benefits of coming to Jesus. And we even see within this section, if you guys slide down to verse 23, where within this section, right after Saul comes to know Jesus, twice his life is threatened. In verse 23 through 25, they say, When many days have passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. It's a very creative way to get out of a bind. So if you have a lot of friends, get baskets, put them by your window, you guys will be set. And then if we slide down to 28 through 30, we see again, when he he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed amongst the Hellenists. And Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. And they were seeking to kill him. And when their brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So twice, I mean within, what, 10 to 12 verses of him coming to know Jesus, being converted, his life is on the line. This is realistically within the first few years of ministry. You see, he went from the persecuted or the persecutor to the persecuted. He went from the hunter to the hunted. He went from causing suffering for Christians to suffering for Christ. And actually later we see Paul gives kind of a glimpse. that We see, okay, these are two moments where Saul's life is on the line. Uh, But as we progress through Saul's letters and him sharing his life experiences, we realize that these two experiences are actually just a drop in the bucket from what he actually experiences by following Christ. And in 2 Corinthians, I mean, he actually has this to say that just kind of gives a nice little glimpse of his life and the suffering he experienced. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, which 40 lashes supposedly was a number that you would die if you got hit that many times. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me on my anxiety for all the churches. You see, he was constantly living within this reality that suffering was just part of part of being a follower of Jesus, and that's a common theme throughout the life of the apostles. I think all but a few of the apostles were, were martyrs and they were not pretty ways to die. History actually has it that Rome killed killed Saul by decapitation. That was the end of his life. You see, Saul suffered much for the sake of Christ. There was an immense cost when it came to Christ, and I can't help to think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous saying, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, a theologian, and ultimately a martyr for Christ. And he has this saying that I'm sure a lot of people have heard before. But he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's, that's true of Saul. And honestly, I think that's true of us. And we probably won't have the same experience that Saul has. But at the same time, suffering is part of, part of the Christian experience. And so at this point, I'm sure the question is, okay, well, this... This seems like a lot. This cost is of immense value. Like, how can we cover that cost? I look at my life, and there's, there's a lot of fear in those kind of situations. But the beauty is we, we can count the cost because Jesus played the ultimate cost. That The gospel is a story of the suffering servant. You see, we can suffer because we know that Jesus suffered. That Jesus was the one that had that 40 lashes minus one. Jesus was the one with the crown of thorns, with the nails through his hands, through the nails through his feet, pierced side. You see, we can carry the cross because he first carried his. And the beautiful thing is that in his suffering, in his burial, in his resurrection, He actually freed us from eternal suffering. Because apart from Jesus, we're apart from God. And apart from God, you will suffer for eternity. See, in John 16, this is Jesus, and he says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Like, what a beautiful statement. Is we can face trials, we can face struggles, we can face suffering... But if we know that the world has already been overcome and we are aligned with the one that has overcome the world, then what is in front of us looks nearly as bad as what it used to. Again, why do you think that all of the apostles and people in the underground church in China or people in Russia over what is still part of like the Soviet, the Soviet communist regime, with it's still present there, why do you think they willingly suffer for Christ's sake? Because they know it's worth it because they see the end they see Jesus glorified next to his father. And it's through that that we can actually rejoice because it's through his death, burial, and resurrection that we can actually be united with Christ. Again, Saul, who later becomes Paul in Romans, he writes, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You see, death is not the end, but it's just the beginning of an actual eternity with Christ, which I guarantee you is far better than what we love in life now. So as you look at our own life, are we willing to count the cost? Would I actually be willing to go to an unknown people group to potentially face suffering? Or would I be willing to engage with my dorm mate or the people that are across the dorm from me with the fear of suffering? And again, not hopefully not life-on-the-line suffering. But am I willing? See, for some of us, the cost might be little, And it might be simply being judged for our beliefs, or we sound archaic, or we sound judgmental, or you're thrown into just being a hypocrite like everybody else. Or for some of us, the cost might be great. I mean, there's a true reality that within this room, some of us, if not many of us, could lay our lives down for our Lord and Savior. But we all know that in the end, it is worth it. I mean, think of the apostles in Acts 5 that we attacked a few months ago, where after them being beaten and told not to talk about Jesus anymore, they left and they had this to say. They said, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. There's actually this idea that to suffer for Jesus is praiseworthy. It's actually an amazing experience that you're actually joining God in what he experienced on this earth. Or again, Paul in Romans, he says, we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't know about you, but I want to experience the glory of God. I want to be glorified with him. And if sufferings are out to take it, then sign me up. Sign me up day after day to experience the glory of God. Or we see again, Paul in Philippians, he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Like it's been granted to us. Like what if we actually view that as an honor? Just as the apostles did, what if we did as well? Or lastly, in 1 Peter, where it says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him give glory to God in that name. You see, within our walk, there's, there's gonna be a cost to following Jesus. And sometimes as I look at the way the world's headed, I think that cost can continue to increase and increase, and maybe not in our generation, but in the generations to come. There's true cost potentially on the line for following Jesus, much more than, oh, I'm judged in my class because I have this view about marriage or this view about homosexuality or this view about drinking or drugs or whatever. But your life could actually be on the line. And the beautiful thing is the story of Saul, I think really shows that it's so worth it. It is so worth it, following Jesus. And secondly, someone else in this story had to count the cost of following Jesus. And that's Ananias. And I think often when we look at this story, we automatically are going to go to Saul and be like, dude, look at Saul, because we know the rest of his life and what goes on. That's a huge cost that he paid. Yet Ananias is in 10-ish verses of the Bible, and this is the only only time that he's even brought up. But the thing is, God calls Ananias to do something that he, he doesn't want to do. I mean, we see in the text how God says, Hey, Ananias, I need you to go to Straight Street to meet this man, Saul. You might have heard of him. And I need you to talk to him, pray with him, and you're going to be the one to give him a sight. And again, Ananias is like, dude, I know who this man is. Like, <laughs> He's coming here to kill me. He's coming here to bring me back to Jerusalem that I may potentially have the same fate as Stephen. Yet in the end, he obeys God. And I really think it's because he wants to see that kingdom growth. He wants to potentially even face suffering for the glory of God because he realizes that the kingdom growth and obedience to God is way greater than persecution or even death. And then I look at my own life because Realistically, as I look at this story, I don't relate to Saul that often because I do not face that kind of persecution. I do not face that kind of suffering. But I think of Ananias, and Ananias being called to go proclaim Christ to a stranger. Are we willing to count the cost for our friends? Are we willing to count the cost for strangers? Like, how often do we hear that little voice in our head that says, hey, go talk to that person, or go pray for that person? And you're like, what'd you, what'd you say? Like, I don't think I heard that. He's like, hey, go talk to that person. Go pray for that person. And you're like, okay, give me like two hours. And then the guy leaves and you're like, oh, dang it, I missed it. Like, that's so often, I think, how we approach those situations. Yet Ananias, he says, God, I, like, I know who this man is. And God says, go. And what does he do? He, he obeys. He responds. He counts the cost and he says, it is worth it. And I know that every time I've listened to the Spirit of God in my life, of his prompting, of his direction, I don't walk away from that experience and be like, oh dang it, that was a mistake. Every time God is faithful and he's going, maybe it's not gonna be the most fruitful conversation, but you're gonna see God working in your life. You might see God working in that person's life years to come. I know there's stories of people in this room that they've had gospel conversations, walked away and been like, that was absolutely terrible. I don't even know if I shared the gospel. And then two years later, you see that person at church, life transformed. But it takes that step. God uses people. And I currently live in a fraternity as a house dad. And I know there are so many experiences in my life when many of these guys don't know Jesus. That I've missed conversations to have, where I've been sitting there and we've been talking about life, or they even will bring up some spiritual thing, and and I feel this prompting to say something, and I just let it pass. It's so easy to count the cost and like, oh, it's not worth it. I'll, I'll pay that later. It's like my student loans. I can just defer for a while until I make enough money. And then I'll, then I'll do it. Or for me, and I know I'm sure Josh and Steven can relate, is like, you get the classic question of, hey, so like, what do you do? Well, like, oh, I'm a pastor and I work for a ministry aside from that. And I have so much opportunity within that moment to have a conversation with them. And it's like, Okay, cool, thanks. Okay, see ya. You know, they might cut off the conversation, but I don't actually even give it an opportunity. See, how often do we avoid Jesus-y conversations, gospel conversations, because we're worried about the other person might think or how that relationship might change. Yeah, we see Ananias going full on and saying, hey, I've counted the cost, God, and it's worth it. And so I challenge you guys as well as I challenge myself, don't let those opportunities slide. When you hear that prompting, when, just as Ananias, when God speaks to you, when God directs you, what if you get to play a part in the story of the next Saul, the story of the next person that gets to be a voice for Jesus? And even if they're not, not the next Saul, they're still your brother or sister in Christ. And that's worth it. That's enough. You see, there's, there's a cost that comes to following Christ. And I think it's worth it. It's definitely worth it, but we have to daily possibly give some of ourself away or give all of ourself away to pay that cost. But we know that the glory in Christ and being glorified with him, I give my life away and it's worth it. And then lastly, we look at the community of conversion. Conversion. And this is important because we realize that Saul's conversion, though it's an individual thing, it's not individualistic. And that's key. Though conversion is individual, it's not individualistic. And as we've talked about a little bit already, that in coming to Christ, we actually come to the people of Christ. We are united with the family of God. And partly I love this story because we actually see how God uses Ananias to share the gospel with Saul, to be part of his story. And I think just in the same way God has called us as a community, us as members of the branch, us as members of churches of Corvallis, as followers of him, to join in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, to be part of conversion stories, to be part of sharing the gospel with our friends. Because it's not an individual thing. It's not, I'm going to keep Jesus inside me and cover him up in a box. But I think it's so easy to do that, and we're like, until somebody comes and like takes off the box and says, hey, tell me the gospel, I just keep it kind of in here. You see, it's not an individualistic thing, but it's actually a community thing, and I think that's also the value of being part of the body of Christ, being part of faithfulness to a church and committed to a people, is that as we go through suffering together, as we go through glory together, we get to praise Christ, and we get to come together and encourage one another of the work that God is using us for. And we see that in this story, that immediately Saul's first response is to join the disciples at Damascus. And then following that, his response is to join the disciples in Jerusalem. Community is so important, and we get the honor to join the family of God. And the awesome thing is, not only is there the community of conversion where it's actually the people of God But there's also that we are united with Christ. Like when we come to Christ, it's Christ in us, us in Christ. Upon coming to Christ, we're actually always in community. Even when we feel alone, even when Saul's off on his own adventures that we'll see in the coming chapters of Acts, he's not actually alone because he has Christ with him. We know that Christ gives us the Holy Spirit, so therefore you're never alone. You've always got God Within you, beside you. And it's beautiful because in the story, we actually see how Jesus identifies with his people. At the very beginning, Jesus' first interaction with Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with the persecuted church. He identifies with those that are struggling, those that are downtrodden. He's saying, I'm with you. I'm in the midst of that. When you persecute my people, you persecute me. Like talk about hope, talk about joy and excitement is that I know that in the midst of that, God is there, he is present. And I love the imagery that God gives where we are the body and he is the head. Because if you realize, even as I walk across the stage, wherever my body's going, my head's going as well. I'm not the headless horseman, that the head's over here and the body's over here. And so where we as the body of Christ go, Christ is the head is also there. We reside with Christ and he resides with us. And that is the beauty of the community of conversion, the community of Christ. You see, this is such a beautiful story. And I love the concluding, the concluding verse. Where he says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Like we get to see, God converts Saul, he changes him from the hunter to the hunted, from somebody that's persecuting for Christ or persecuting against Christ to then actually being persecuted for Christ. And we see the church grow. We see faithfulness. We see conversions happening. Like that is an awesome, awesome reality, an awesome story that happened 2,000 years ago. And what I love about this is each of us should really have a love for God using Saul. Because Saul was the one that proclaimed Jesus to the Gentiles. And unless you're Jewish, we're all Gentiles. And so part of our story begins in Acts 9. When Jesus goes to Saul and says, Hey, you're going to suffer much for my sake, but I'm going to use you as an instrument for my name. I love N.T. Wright. He, uh, he writes on this, this conversion and i think he sums it up a lot better than i could if i tried. and he says we call this event a conversion, but it's more like a volcanic eruption, thunderstorm and tidal wave all coming together. if the death and resurrection of jesus is the hinge on which the door of history swung open at last, the conversion of saul of tarsus was the moment when all the ancient promises of god gathered themselves up, rolled themselves into a ball and came hurling through that open door and out into the wide world beyond. God uses Saul to move the gospel forward into the world as we know it. God used a man that no one thought he could save, that was so far gone. But it really shows that God really can save anyone. And not only can he save them, he can use them for his kingdom. As I said at the beginning, I hope that we have two responses within this text. The first being praise, and the first being introspection or conviction. And I really believe that this text demands praise and introspection. And quickly, we'll look through the three different elements first being the characteristics of conversion. I think we ought to praise God for what he has done. I mean, we look at our life, we look at how we were dead in our transgressions and Christ came and pulled us out of the miry clay and set our feet upon a rock, which is him. Like, we have to praise God for the transformation in our life from bringing us from death to life. But I think it's also important to look into our own lives and say, are those characteristics true of me? Like, can I actually say, yeah, I've surrendered my life to Christ? Or maybe it's, have I actually encountered Christ, or do I just know a lot about him? Have I lost my first love? It's important to look within our own lives. Is this true of me today? Or we look at the cost of conversion. You see, we ought to praise Jesus for the suffering, whether big or small, that we experience in life, because it's through suffering that we actually are seeking glorification, getting glorification. We're getting perseverance. We're getting more Christ-like through that suffering. And we praise God that he suffered first, and he suffered immensely through life and through death on the cross so that we don't have to suffer for eternity. But as we look at our own lives, we have to ask, in in what my life am I counting the cost for following Christ? Am I I willing to, to put much towards that? Am I willing to put much towards my friends coming to know Jesus? Am I willing to put much towards putting potentially my life on the line in these circumstances? And lastly, we look at the community of conversion. And it demands us, I think, to praise God for the people that are part of our family, that we get to see around us, that we can be thankful for the work God has done in the lives of those around us. Or praise God for the people that God has used in our life, to spur us along in the faith, or to even have us come to know Jesus. Praise God for the Ananiases in our life, and praise God for uniting us into his family. I think we also ought to look into our own lives and ask, am I actually communing with God? What does my weekly life look like? What does my monthly life look like, my daily life? Or do I commune with his people? You see, this is a beautiful, beautiful story, one that leaves us praising God, because if he can save Saul, he really can't save anybody, and he saved a lot of us. But it also calls us to look into our own lives and to say, God, where, where do you want more of me? Let's pray.